there are things about that tradition that are really powerful and that we want to glean from where we can. And it just so happens that our study through the individual book of Hebrews has already taken us through some themes that I think will help us to understand the, the moments on the church calendar that have come for us this week even more clearly. So I think our two approaches can dovetail today, that we can draw from what we've already studied with Hebrews and apply it to the things that, that Christians across the world are celebrating this week. In particular, I think it helps us understand why the one who is celebrated as king on Sunday ends up dead on Friday. That's a deeply ironic twist in the story that otherwise seems to be moving Jesus towards conquering everything that, that stands in his way. Then all of a sudden he, he dies. That's a central irony that you can't miss if you want to understand the importance of Christianity. And I think that some of the themes we've covered already in Hebrews help us understand that irony. I like to think of Hebrews as a kind of director's cut of the DVD that is the story of the Bible. It is, it is a commentary on the events that play out in the Gospels. So if the Gospels tell us the story of Jesus and his birth and his teaching and his miracles and then his entry into Jerusalem and his death and resurrection, Hebrews is one of those, those later letters that comments on the significance of those details in a way that a lot of times the ones who are telling the story don't actually offer. That's what I want to do today. And I want to do that by bringing in this character whose name has already come up a couple of times in our study of Hebrews, this guy Melchizedek. I, I am guessing that none of you here have ever heard a Palm Sunday sermon in which Melchizedek was a central feature. Any, anybody? Show of hands. Anybody ever heard a Palm? I, I, am, I am actually willing to wager that we may be the only church in the world that's going to talk about Melchizedek today. We've actually, I've actually joked about him a couple of times already in our series because he's such a strange and enigmatic figure. It just sort of pops up out of nowhere, and yet this author to Hebrews thinks that he's so central. I think I remember joking early on, maybe even in the intro to the whole series, that, that um, there's nothing to get you excited about a study of Hebrews than thinking about the connections of Melchizedek to your everyday life. It, it just doesn't connect, at least not immediately. I think that, that introducing ourselves to this guy today as we look to Palm Sunday and Good Friday and ultimately to Easter will help us to see much more clearly how this figure who was so important to the author of Hebrews is also deeply important to us and our lives as followers of Jesus. My purpose today, because we're, it's different and it follows the fact that we're not just taking one passage and explaining it in the way that we normally would. We're going to jump around some today. My purpose is also a little different today. Normally, we're, we're trying to get at one individual passage and to get really practical about how it changes the way we look at things as, as believers. Today, my goal is for us to leave better prepared to reflect on Jesus, his coming, his death, and his resurrection this week. My goal is to sharpen our focus and prepare our hearts to better connect with him. Here's how I want to do it this morning. I want to start by entering into the story itself, the story that we're reliving with Christians all over the world this week. And I'm going to use Mark's gospel to do that. Obviously, we're not going to read many of the passages that we could. I want to just refer you to some of the details that Mark tells to sort of enter into it and make sure we get just how ironic it was 
that this man who came announcing a kingdom and who was, who was welcomed into Jerusalem with the shouts of, of followers of such a king ends up dead, and not just dead, but ends up coronated as king on a cross. I want to make sure you're connecting with why that should surprise us. Then once we get that down, I want to take us to Melchizedek to understand something about who he was, what he came to represent in Jewish history, and then especially how he's connected to Jesus in the argument that the author of the Hebrews makes. I think that is going to set us up really well to have a more meaningful experience this week as we commemorate these events. So now, to begin with, I want to, I want to make sure we're connecting with the irony of Holy Week. And there is no gospel that's better suited to helping us see that than Mark. We studied Mark uh, together as a congregation beginning last fall, I guess it was, fall 2010. It took us about through this time last year. And one of the things we noticed over and over again is how much Mark uses these twists that no one expects, these, these deep ironies. And it never comes through more clearly than in Mark's presentation of what happens on the week that Jesus dies. So I'm going to take you back. Try to help you put yourself in the shoes of one who would have been at Jerusalem when Jesus entered that day that we commemorate as Palm Sunday. Imagine that you're that person, a, a good Jewish person who's been faithful attending synagogues, who's familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, which was your Bible at that point. You would have grown up hearing stories of heroes in the past, like we're told of Washington or Lincoln or Martin Luther King. You would have heard stories of heroes like that, but with one major difference. Their stories promised one to come of whom earlier heroes were only shadows. One who would provide what those early, earlier heroes could not provide. One who would provide a final and a perfect kingdom. Imagine how those who were stuck under Roman tyranny would have longed for that day. It's hard for us to imagine because we don't know tyranny. Not here, not like they did. Imagine you're living under an occupier who at, on a whim could make your life a living hell. And imagine if you're living under that kind of occupier, how you would have longed for the one who was anointed to come and to give you peace, to set right everything that has gone wrong. Now imagine that these same individuals heard of Jesus. Maybe they knew somebody who knew somebody who happened to be at his baptism when the heavens opened above him and a voice spoke out to him, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Maybe they knew someone who knew someone who was at the graveyard where the demoniac was healed. That Mark tells about earlier and early in his story. This demoniac who had been shackled by chains and just about every other way that these people could think of to restrain him, and he would shatter them all. There was nothing that could keep this guy down. And Jesus speaks to him, and with a word, he is cleansed of all that evil. Maybe they had heard from an eyewitness of one who was on the shore when one average lunch fed 5,000 people. And you can imagine the drama building in them. Is this the one? And now he's come to Jerusalem, to the centerpiece of all of the hopes of this people. It all hung on one who would not only come, but would build this perfect kingdom centered in Jerusalem. And from there to the ends of the earth spread the blessing that was promised to Abraham. And now here comes Jesus. 
and he's riding in. And you're with the crowds who greet him. Mark chapter 11 records the story. They brought the colt to Jesus, verse 7 says, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Of course, the great irony in Mark's story is that this moment, this moment we're celebrating today as Palm Sunday, the, 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 the foreshadowing of Jesus coming as the king who had been promised, was not his coronation at all. The irony of Mark is that these were empty praises. These same people who shouted to him one day were shouting for his death a few days later. The irony is that the way Mark sets up his story, Jesus' death is what reads like a coronation ceremony. I don't know if you've noticed this before. We're going to look at these details. The whole story of his death gives pointers to him being the king and his establishment as king. I don't know if, how many of you guys saw the king's speech or have ever seen like a, a, a coronation described on film or, or read a, an account of it in, in all of its details. What you expect, what that movie portrays really well, is a sort of packed-out cathedral full of worshipers adorned with all the frills and the pomp and the circumstance, the singing of Handel's coronation chorus, the solemn vows that are taken, the extravagant clothing that, that is worn, especially by the king, the entire nation watching with pride and awe. Jesus' coronation as king looked nothing like that. Let me trace this theme through with you. It begins in chapter 14 of Mark. In chapter 14, Jesus has been arrested, and he's been taken before this council who will decide what his fate. All along in Mark's story, Jesus has been denying, not denying, but sort of pushing off questions about whether or not he is the Messiah, whether he's the one. And he's done that because he knows that people have expectations for that Messiah that aren't accurate, and he doesn't want them assuming he's going to do something he's not come to do. He knows they can't understand that he's going to die. But now, on the night before his death, when he's asked at this council, are you the king of the Jews? He finally admits, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming in power with the clouds of heaven. The theme continues in chapter 15. Before Pilate, Pilate himself, this Roman governor, a man of great power, power over Jesus' life and death, refers to Jesus as the king of the Jews. Now, he isn't himself worshiping him, but Mark, that's his little bit of irony. He is actually speaking truly. When he calls Jesus king of the Jews in chapter 15, verse 2, and then again in verse 9, and then again in verse 12, over and over, as Pilate is interacting with Jesus and those who want him dead, he's referring to him as king. This is Jesus assuming a title that was to be his, but it's in this deeply ironic circumstances. Then the soldiers take over. This is in verses 16 and following of chapter 15 in Mark. The soldiers take over. 
And it's even more laced through with kingship and coronation imagery. The soldiers are mocking him, of course, but they put a purple robe on him, the color of royalty, and they they weave a crown for him. It's a crown of thorns, but it's a crown nonetheless, and they crown him. They bow down to him in mock homage. And though Mark doesn't record this, we know that when they nailed him to the cross... They nailed above his head the charges that stand against him, and it read, King of the Jews. They gave him this title in his death. It didn't read, he claimed to be King of the Jews. That's why the Pharisees got upset about it. It read simply, King of the Jews. Can you see how this whole story is meant to point to the fact that here, in his death, not in his triumphant entry, in his death, Jesus is crowned as the King that Israel had waited for all those years. What's that about? Why is he crowned here and in that way? Jesus takes power not by oppressive force, not like some sort of Genghis Khan or or some sort of Hitler figure who just by, by sheer might takes the crown. Jesus takes his crown by self-sacrifice. Why? That's a question that Mark wants his readers asking, but he doesn't himself answer in very much detail. It's a question that was left to later writers, like the author of Hebrews, to answer. Why does Jesus get crowned in his death? The point of that story has to be that there's no king without also there being death. But why does that have to be the case? One of the beautiful things about the Bible's story is the way that it always points ahead to what's coming. And then when those things come, those events themselves are always framed in light of what came before. There's this tapestry that gets woven, so the whole thing fits together like a glove. And we all know some of the easy ones, easy connections we can point out, things like David or Abraham, Moses, the the Exodus, things like that. Melchizedek is certainly not in that hall of fame. But now our author in Hebrews is picking him up and saying, this is why Jesus matters. Jesus matters and offers you something you can't get from anybody else because of Melchizedek and his connection to him. What is that about? I think the author to Hebrews' connection to Melchizedek helps us understand why Jesus was crowned king in his death. The connection is this. In order to be a king, to provide what the the Messiah was meant to provide, a new world, a place of peace and security where there's no fear and no want, where all is right and as it should be. For that to be possible, for a king to provide peace, there must be a priest to provide purity. Because Israel's problems, much like our own, were not first and foremost the threats outside of them that could keep them from peace, but the threat inside of them that made them not deserving of peace. For there to be a king, that king also had to be a priest. That's the key. And Melchizedek helps us understand how Jesus is both perfectly. What I want to do to to, to try to get at Melchizedek quickly is take you through the places that he's mentioned. And that isn't going to take long because he's only mentioned in two different places before he comes up again in Hebrews. I want to show you who he was. That's a passage in Genesis that that talks about the man, the, the historical occurrence of Melchizedek. And then I want to talk about what he represented for the Jewish people. And that'll take us to Psalm 110, 
where he's, where he's sung about in Israel's worship. And then I want to say how he's connected to Jesus. And that'll take us quickly to Hebrews. Those are our three steps we're going to take to try to get at Melchizedek today and understand how he helps us see Palm Sunday and Good Friday more clearly. Who he was. Flip over, if you have a Bible, to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Here's what's going on in Genesis 14. Abraham has just finished wiping clean these hostile kings who had taken his family members captive. He went after them, his, his nephew Lot, and he took them back. He, he was successful in his battle. And now as he is leaving that battle and heading back to where he was living at the time, he encounters almost out of nowhere this figure called Melchizedek. Chapter 14, verse 17 sets this up very briefly. It's really like two verses where he's talked about. Let's read it together. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of whatever that guy's name is, Shadrach-Leomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, King's Valley. And here comes Melchizedek, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Exit Melchizedek. That's it. No more details. Basically, he comes up as a footnote in an account that was more about Abram and the king of Sodom than it was about Melchizedek. He just happens to be there serving bread and wine. We're not even told how he ended up in the king's valley when this meeting went down between Abram and the king of Sodom. He's just there. Details are scant. But for some reason, Abram recognizes this guy's holiness, and he most likely asked for a blessing, which Melchizedek gives him. That's pretty much it. But here are the questions that it raises. Why is he mentioned at all if the story in Genesis would have been pretty much the same if he hadn't been mentioned? Nothing about this plot, about this action that's happened, about Abram's battle with these other kings and now his meeting with the king of Sodom and what comes later, none of that has anything to do with Melchizedek. If you, if you take these two verses out, the story stands on its own. What's he doing there? Why is he mentioned at all? Even more. Because he is blessing Abram and because in this world, the, the, the world of Genesis, it was always understood that the greater figure blesses the lesser figure. Who is this that he provides a blessing to Abram, the centerpiece of God's promise to redeem the world? Who is it that gets to bless him? That's who he was. More questions than answers. What did he represent? To get there, we've got to go over to Psalm 110. Flip over there if you've got a Bible. Psalm 110. This is, the, this is a psalm that is quoted. It's one of the most often quoted passages from the New Testament, quoted, or from the Old Testament, quoted in the New Testament. It's a psalm that's mostly about the king, of David, king David and his line, those who would come after him, who it was promised would establish peace for God's people. That's mainly what it's about. It's a psalm about kingship. So you can see, if, you're, if you've got it 
your Bible turn to 110, it starts with this passage you've probably heard many times. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Until, in other words, I have given you the kingdom of peace that's been promised. The Lord sends forth from Zion, the psalm continues, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And the rest of the psalm is full of language like that, about this king who would come, who would wipe out all opposition to God's people. But then at the middle of it, in the middle of this song about kingship, in verse 4, we get this verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Here's what he swore. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then verse 5 is right back to kingship language. So here we have a psalm that should be very familiar to God's people. It's about the, the hope for a king who would protect them from all their enemies. It's about peace. But in the middle of it, this king is told that he's also going to be a priest, that he's going to be a priest just like Melchizedek was a priest. And that I think we're meant to see this peace that the king was supposed to provide had a lot to do with the fact that he was also a priest who could provide what only priests were meant to provide, the righteousness and holiness that allows a people to communicate with God, to be accepted by him. Somehow this peace that was expected depended on the activity of one who was not just king, but also priest and a priest forever. That's what Melchizedek represented. That's it. That's him in the Old Testament, those two references. Then the guy who wrote Hebrews, whoever he was, picks up this character and tells us that Melchizedek is at the center of why Jesus matters. Jesus offers you something no one else can because Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What is that about? How is he connected? Hebrews explains to us why Jesus had to die to become king. And it explains this ironic fact by appealing to Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7 is the most detailed explanation of this connection. We've already seen him come up. Last week, our passage from chapter 5, he was mentioned a couple times there. Quoting from Psalm 110 that we just read and saying, Jesus is going to be a priest in this order forever. Now then, chapter 7, which we'll come to in much more detail later on in our study of Hebrews, we get, we get a lot more details about what this connection is. In chapter 7, our author makes a lot of, uh, of, draws a lot of attention to the significance of Melchizedek's name. You know, in the old days, in, in, especially in the bi- biblical times, names really meant a lot. It wasn't just whether you liked the sound of it. It was about the meaning behind the words that were used. Think especially about how this works in the story of the Bible, how some key points. Uh, think, for instance, of Isaac, meaning one who laughs or laughter, because Sarah didn't believe that it was possible that in her old age she could conceive and bear a son. Think about Jacob's name. He was called the deceiver or one who snatches at the heel because he was constantly trying to get a leg up on his brother Esau. Think about the prophets that we looked at in the fall. And those children named not my people and no mercy as an, as an indicator that God was not going to show mercy anymore. And then new children are born and new names are given and they're called mercy and my people. And now the author to Hebrews says to us that Melchizedek's name is hugely important. Melchizedek, he says in verse 3, 
or excuse me, in verse 2 of chapter 7, says, He, Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, the king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, which means peace. What he's getting at is the simple way that this guy is described in the Genesis story. He's, he's, it's said that he's, he rules over Salem, and that word is the same word that means peace. He's a king of peace. But then his name, Melchizedek, is translated king of righteousness. The author of Hebrews is telling us that what we're looking for has got to be somebody who combines righteousness and peace. That we can't have the peace we want unless we first have the righteousness that we need. This person, in other words, has to be both king and priest, just like Melchizedek was. He's a hint, in other words, that the king upon whom the hopes of Israel rested could not be successful if he wasn't also a priest who could make that people righteous. Jesus is king, just like Melchizedek was. But he's also a priest forever, just like Melchizedek. And the reason that he's a priest forever is that unlike the other priests who constantly kept service in the temple during the time of, of Israel's uh, during Israel's time in the land and with the tabernacle, Jesus priest, Jesus as priest offers a sacrifice of himself that's so perfect it never has to be offered again. And that makes him a priest forever. Where other priests died and therefore couldn't continue to serve. And where other priests, even while they were alive and serving, were having to make sacrifices over and over and over again because the sins were never really taken care of, Jesus, an eternal priest like Melchizedek, makes one sacrifice once for all, and he's done with it. Melchizedek helps us see that for Jesus to offer peace like the Messiah was meant to offer, he had to first die because he also had to be a priest who offers a perfect sacrifice for those who come to him. That's the connection. That's how Melchizedek helps us understand Jesus and this special ironic twist that we're all commemorating this week. Now here's what I want to say in conclusion. As we, as we try to, to set ourselves up for this week to reflect well on Palm Sunday, on Good Friday, and then ultimately on Easter, I think that that this passage, these passages we've looked at, this connection between Jesus and Melchizedek helps us clarify our view. And I, and I want to help you see that by suggesting that you ask yourself and pray carefully over three questions this week as you observe Holy Week. Three questions. First, why do I need a priest king? What we're claiming is that the story goes down the way it does because Jesus couldn't be king unless he was also a priest who offers himself as a sacrifice. What we're claiming is that anyone who really gives us what we need has got to be king and priest. Why do I need that? It goes back to the same thing that Israel needed. It goes back to the fact that we're threatened not just by the outs- things on the outside, Things like, you know, potential poverty or um, threats to our safety or, you know, job loss or whatever. These sort of outside threats, things that can be done to us that worry us, that make us love the idea of a king who gives us everything that we need. Our threats aren't just on the outside, but they're on the inside as well. Ultimately, this takes us back to something we said last week. 
our biggest problem, really the root of all, the, all of the um, dissatisfaction and the shame and the anger and the restlessness and fear and depression and sorrow that, that touches all of us and that, break, that, that shows the brokenness of our world, the reason that stuff exists is first and foremost because there is a relationship at the heart of all of our lives that's broken. A relationship that we were made for. A relationship that we can't live without. The reason we need someone who's not just king but also priest is that we need this relationship to be healed if we're to have any hope. This is a breach that's our fault. And when we sin, we make a statement about who God is, about what he's worth. And what we say about him is that he isn't able to provide us what this other thing, whatever it is we're choosing in our sinfulness, is able to provide us. That is a, a stain on his name, and he can't let it stand. He's got to wipe it clean. That's why we need a priest king. If we were okay, if really the only thing we needed was more strength, if we were not impure but only weak, then we could do with just a king. I think that's what Israel was looking for. They were looking for someone to come in and throw off the Roman oppressors and give them the kingdom that they had been looking ahead to. Their problem, in their view, was likely that they weren't powerful enough on their own to establish themselves, and they needed help. But if the only thing that's wrong with us is that we're weak, that there are things out of our control that can happen to us that are not good, then a king is all we need. But the story that we've just covered says that we need something much more, not just a king, but one who can make us pure, that we won't have peace without it. So this week, as we try to get ready to celebrate Good Friday and Easter, try to connect with the reason that Jesus had to die. And that means trying to connect with your own sin. It means looking straight on at it and praying that God show it to you. Second question. Ask yourself, am I ashamed of the priest king? Am I ashamed of the priest king? Here's what I'm getting at. I think we find ourselves today where Jesus' first audience found themselves. I think Jesus' first audience struggled to, with the notion that he would die. They were looking for one who would come in and clean house, you know, and establish this kingdom. They wanted a kingdom free from fear and wiped clean of all evil threats. And we want that too. We love passages that speak of an end to sorrow, passages that promise there's no more tears, that light will, will wipe clean all the darkness. And we get thrilled at the idea of being part of that now, of sort of pushing back the darkness through our work to, to reflect the kingdom and to bring it in, through work to alleviate poverty or to, uh, to help victims of abuse, to, to, to be part of beating back darkness and healing what's broken. I don't know of anyone who thinks that those kinds of activities are a bad idea. We connect easily with those things. But what we don't easily connect with is the idea that Jesus also had to die, that a sacrifice was necessary. That's scandalous, and it always has been. It was scandalous in the first century just as much as it is today. It seems to us primitive and unnecessary. It's kind of disgusting to talk about it. Some people have even called it child abuse, that God would kill his own son to make other people acceptable. It just doesn't 
connect with us in the same way. So ask yourself, as we prepare to, to celebrate Good Friday, are you ashamed of the fact that your king also had to be a priest? And if so, what does that mean for how you're going to be able to connect with Christianity? Because all through the Bible, this connection between kingship and priesthood is laid out for us. We're pointed to it over and over again. And there's no accepting Jesus apart from accepting him as a priest who had to sacrifice himself for us. Finally, ask yourself, am I trusting the priest king? Am I trusting the priest king? This is a question we always have to ask ourselves. That it's one thing to say in our minds, in our, in our, in our words, that, that we, are, we are followers of Jesus and we depend on him for everything. But in our hearts, we obviously drift from him. And as we look to his death on Good Friday, what we've got to ask ourselves is, does our perspective on our sin and how strong it remains, on our ongoing battle between wanting to follow Jesus and struggling with sin and its place in our lives, does our perspective on it reflect the truth about Jesus and what he provides? Here's what I mean. There are two errors we've got to try to avoid. We've got to, on the one hand, avoid thinking that we can beat sin through our own willpower. And we're not saying here that you shouldn't try to be disciplined, right? All of us have got to figure out safeguards to keep us from just giving in over and over to sin and to, to try to push us on to, to holiness. Paul talks about it like a, like a race or a fight, and that's good. But don't ever think that, you can, that your sin is a problem that through hunkering down you can get past. No, your sin took Jesus' death. You needed a priest, not just a king, because your sin is a problem that's too big for you. And this is a week when especially we're called to reflect on that. We're not trusting him, in other words, to be both priest and king for us. If we're, if we're thinking that sin is something we can, can kill on our own. But then on the other hand, you've got to recognize that you're not hopeless apart from his grace. Some of us are going to be thinking that we're too far gone, too guilty. And this minimizes how powerful Jesus' death is. It shows that you don't trust him to be a good enough priest for you. As if for some reason you're beyond saving. Ask yourself, am I trusting the priest king? Do I think that sin is something I can fix? Do I think that sin is something no one can fix for me? Either one of those answers shows that you don't truly trust that Jesus is the perfect once for all priest that Hebrews promises he is. Father, help us. Help us especially this week as we try to remember the things that Christ has accomplished for us. Help us to love what we read of and, and hear. Give us hearts to respond well to them. Help us to trust. Help us to feel no shame, but to find joy in the fact that Jesus didn't even balk at death to make us holy. Thank you, Father, for one who is both priest and king. Help us now to turn to him in faith. We pray in his name. Amen.